Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak and that you would make us attentive to your voice. Father, we pray that as we engage in a conversation over the next three weeks about what it means to be the church, I pray, O oh God, that you would reignite our own hearts with a vision of being a community that truly does reflect in our life together everything that you came into this world to do. God, would you drive out conflict and divisions and all of the things that, that, that bring toxicity into this place? And God, would you mold and shape us so that we could be your faithful people in this world? And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... So today we're going to be launching a new series entitled Life Together. It will be a short series, just three weeks. But the, the subtitle to the series, and I want you to notice on our, um, uh, on our screen, is Conflict and Community. And I just thought when I was looking at this, I, I was noting the contrast between this word conflict and the lovely smile of Pat Depry on the screen. You just think like, come on, Josh, did you have to put conflict in there when, when Pat seems to be reflecting such joy, exuding such, you know, so much of what we want our church life to be like together. But, but of course, uh, life together involves conflict. Can I get a witness to that? Anytime you share life together with just about anyone, you will experience conflict. So yesterday, my wife and I celebrated 22 years of marriage. It's our 22 anniversary, yeah. And you know, our life together, it has been marked by joy and happiness, and we've had so many wonderful experiences together. But I'll be honest, our, our life together has also been marked by conflict. And you think, the pastor, really, even in your marriage, conflict? Yes, of course, you know. In every marriage, there's conflict. In every home, there's conflict. Uh, if you just moved in with roommates the last couple weeks in college, you're going to experience conflict, right? And uh, there's conflict, uh, of of course, in our neighborhoods, and, and there's conflict in our nation, and of course, there's conflict in our churches. Uh, whenever we share life together, there is conflict. But you know, not all conflict is the same. I began reading a book uh, last week in, in preparation of this sermon series, and the title of this book was High Conflict by a social commentator, a journalist whose name was Amanda Ripley. And she makes this distinction between two different kinds of conflict. She says, on the one hand, there is good conflict. And she said, good conflict is serious, it can be intense, but it usually leads somewhere that's useful. And oftentimes you've experienced this, haven't you? you? You know, you had something underneath the surface and you had to deal with it. You know, there was a conversation you needed to have with your roommate or your parents or with your spouse. And it wasn't until it came to the surface and there was a heated discussion and some tears were shed and voices were raised that you actually came to resolution. And very often health in our relationships depends upon us knowing how to engage in conflict in a way that's healthy and leads somewhere productive. And so she said, on the one hand, there is good conflict. But on the other hand, there is what she, she labels high conflict. And she said, this kind of conflict is different because this conflict is self-perpetuating, it is all-consuming, 
and almost everyone ends up, I intended to say worse off, but I didn't make the change there, so it says words off. But oftentimes, that's the result of that kind of conflict, right? You just stop talking to each other. And actually, some of you have gone words off with people in your family, with people in the church, uh, with people uh, at school, because you reached a point where you just felt like we don't understand each other anymore. We can't even talk to each other anymore. And, and high conflict is actually one of the defining marks of the culture we now inhabit. You know, as, as Amanda Ripley explores this idea of high conflict, uh, she says that, that, that Kind of the defining way in which we can understand high conflict is it separates people into two different categories. There's us, and then there's them. Uh, there's the category you are in, and then there's the lesser category that they are in. And of course, we live in a culture that more and more is just separating people into categories. And when you sort people into categories and you give them labels, it almost guarantees we're going to have conflict and hostility because all of a sudden there are now two sides and everyone must choose. And uh, Amanda Ripley goes on and she says this. She says, categories blur important details. They're efficient. That's why we like to use them. It's easier to just to say, ah, oh, they're a progressive or they're conservative, or they're red, or they're blue, or uh, they're a Marxist, or they're a racist, or a white supremacist. It's, it's easier to use a category. Uh, it's more efficient. You don't have to use too many words. But she says, categories blur important details. They're efficient, yes, slippery. She said, the reality is, is that most of us are pretty complex and complicated when it comes to the myriad of issues we discuss as a culture. You know, you think of, of issues ranging from uh, immigration to face masks and vaccinations uh, to the issue of race and the role it plays in society and culture. There's all kinds of issues, and most of us are very complex and we're complicated, some of us ambivalent, some very knowledgeable, some actually quite ignorant. Often I found that there is a correlation between how ignorant people are about issues and how loudly and opinionated they are about them. I often am loud and opinionated about issues, usually ones I am least knowledgeable of. And so she says, we tend to divide each other into us and to them. And then we not just categorize, but we also start to demonize. You know, a recent survey found that 60% of voters think that members of the other party constitute a threat to America. More than 40% call them evil, and 20% would call members of the other party animals. And a third believe that violence could be justified to advance their goals. See, loathing and hostility and demonization of others actually motivates us more these days than actually an accurate understanding of our neighbors. And of course, the categorization and then the demonization then leads to alienation. You see, once we have them in contrast with us, we change. And there are neurological studies on this reality. You know, the brain behaves differently when we separate people into categories and we create labels. Quote, we feel increasingly certain about our own superiority and at the same time more mystified by the other side. 
When we encounter them in person or on cable news channel, we might feel a tightening in our chest or a dread mixed with rage as we listen to whatever misguided, inane, dangerous thing the other side has to say. Can anybody relate to that? Am I talking to anybody? So we categorize, we demonize, and it leads to alienation. And of course, this reality is just tearing us apart as a nation. It is tearing many of your homes apart. It is, it is tearing churches apart. And it's crept into this church, and it, is, it has created divisions even in this church family. High conflict is a real issue, and if we are going to be the kind of community that Jesus wants us to be, we have got to grapple with this issue and understand how Jesus himself deals with high conflict in the people of God. And what we're going to see today as we look at Ephesians 2 is that this issue of high conflict is not in any, in any way a new issue. You know, it was a very real and alive issue in the first century when the gospel began to spread throughout the ancient world. In fact, in the ancient world, there was as polarized a group as you can imagine. Uh, there was as hostile uh, a group, two, two groups as you can imagine. And these two groups demonized each other frequently and regularly. And there was a deep, deep hostility that, that rivals any kind of hostility and toxicity we, we witness in our own day and age today. And the hostility that existed, the us and them that existed in the first century was the, the hostility, the division, the categories of Jew and Gentile. And in the text that we're looking at today, the Apostle Paul is going to show us how these two groups had experienced this radical alienation and how the work of Jesus Christ was actually to obliterate the alienation and not just to bring people into relationship with God. Certainly, the work of Jesus Christ was aimed at healing the alienation we have with God. But the work of Christ is also aimed at healing the alienation we experience with each other. And this text talks to us about how the work of Christ obliterates the alienation and actually restores and heal people who have previously been at odds and how the work of Jesus actually creates a radically new thing. And to have us kind of like see what Paul is talking about here, I want us just to focus on one verse in the passage that we had read. And it's from Ephesians 2 verse 14. And it says this. We'll start in verse 13 just to give it a little context. Paul says this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, right there, he's saying, look, you were far off. He's speaking here to non-Jewish people, Gentile people. He's saying, look, you were far off from God. And this is the good news of the gospel, that you who are far off from the creator have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. You have been given a tight and intimate relationship with God, the creator of all things. But he says, you have not just been brought near to God. What he's going to say is you've also been brought near to each other. God is interested not just in healing our relationship with him. He's interested in healing relationships that are fractured among each other. And so he says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
And I want us just to explore this text by observing three things. Number one, I want us to note from this text the walls of hostility we build. Secondly, I want us to note from this passage the walls of hostility that Jesus destroys. And then finally, we're going to note what Jesus replaces with that wall of hostility, something altogether new and beautiful. So the wall, how Jesus destroys the wall, and what Jesus replaces with the wall. And in fact, um, because you have all been so good, I am going to illustrate each one of these points with one of my handy-dandy drawings. So, so let's note first this phrase, the dividing wall of hostility. You guys ready? Here it comes. Here it comes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I spent, I spent extra time today on this. But Paul describes this dividing wall of hostility. And it was a wall that divided us from them. And the us in this case were the Jews. Earlier, they're called the circumcision. And he says uh, it separated them from the ones who were called the uncircumcision. Now, I think for most of us modern readers, we just, we get uncomfortable with Paul talking so much about circumcision. I know I do as a pastor. There have been way too many sermons where I've had to read through passages. I'm like, this makes me feel awkward in front of all these people, but here we are. But um, circumcision in brief was one of the badges of membership in God's covenant people. In the same way that a police officer has a special uniform and wears a special badge, so too God's people were given a special uniform, a special badge that would mark them off as being a part of God's covenant people. The chief among those uh, symbols that marked them off for the men was circumcision. They had other things, the unique food they ate, the rituals they observed, the holidays they practiced and celebrated, and the temple that they worshiped at. These were all markers that define the people of God. And it made them in. And it divided them off from the people out there, the uncircumcised ones, uh, the Gentiles. And it's interesting because he speaks here about a wall of hostility that divided the Jews from the Gentiles, those who were part of God's covenant people, from those who were outside of God's covenant people. And he speaks here about this wall of hostility. And what's fascinating is that it was almost certainly the case that Paul here is referring to an actual wall that existed in the city of Jerusalem in the temple that divided Jews from Gentiles. You see, in the temple, uh, it, was, it was the place where God's people would go and worship, and they would bring their animal sacrifices. And uh, there was different courts in the temple. And so there was a court for priests who were part of the Jewish family. And then there was a court for uh, the men that were a part of the Jewish family. Then there was a court for the women that were a part of the Jewish family. And all of these courts gave them immediate access to the temple. It was all on the same level. But then you would walk down five steps from that level on which the temple was. And there was a wall. And then you'd go down another 14 steps, and then there was another wall. And then behind that other wall, there was another court that was the court for the Gentiles. And there was a wall that divided the court of the Gentiles, which was down low, from the court of the, uh, from the, the Jewish people, which was up high, which gave them access to the temple. And on that wall, there has been inscriptions found that says, you cross this wall only at the risk of your own life. 
In fact, there actually is uh, archaeological evidence uh, for this kind of signage. This is uh, an actual piece from the temple in Jerusalem. And this, on, this, on this little piece, it is written in Greek, a warning for any Gentile who would cross over the wall. And so do you see what's happening? They are dividing themselves, sectioning themselves off from those dirty, awful Gentiles. They have created a wall, but the wall wasn't just this physical thing that existed in Israel. The wall existed in their hearts. And do you know what this is like? To actually have a wall of hostility go up in your heart against somebody else. Have you experienced that in the last 18 months? And what issues for you have created a sense of alienation and hostility and anger against your brothers and sisters? What has been kind of the walls that built up in your own heart and life? This is what the Jews were doing. Now, I want you to notice that the wall that divided them, uh, the wall reflected practices and laws and ordinances that God had given them. In other words, they had divided themselves off of the Gentiles around them and had created a hostile attitude, you know, demeaning them and looking down on them and thinking they were awful and, and kind of dividing them off. And of course, the Gentiles would return the favor because how do you feel when somebody is demeaning you and being hostile to you? What do you like to do? You like to give it back, amen? Can I get a witness on it for all the people who like vengeance? Give it back to them, Right? They put that on me, I'm gonna put, you know, so there's this like ongoing hostility that just keeps going back and forth, you know? It's just like this dance, you know? Can we just do this, can we just, let's just do this dance right now. All right, so that's not gonna work here. Um, I don't think it'd work anywhere. Moving on. But there's this division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and the thing that made the, Gent, or the Jews feel superior and better and look down on them with disdain was that they possessed something that they didn't have. Namely, they possessed God's law and God's commandments and God's ordinances. And the possession of these practices and these ordinances gave them a sense that they were better than them. And so let's note this. Sometimes you can use a good thing and you can transform that good thing into a bad thing and it can become a basis for your hostility against somebody else. And so, for example, you can take a good thing. Maybe there is an issue like race or vaccines or masks or something like that that you have done a great deal of research on. You care about this issue. It's meaningful to you. And, and, and you, can, you can feel like, I've done my homework. I've listened to my podcast. I've watched YouTube clips. I've read books. Thank God for you who don't just stop at podcasts, but you read books. <laughs> and I, I know something about this. And they don't. They're ignorant. They're stupid. They're an idiot. They're inane. What's wrong with them? And you can use your own good thing as a basis for feeling superior over them. You can, you can use your knowledge of politics. You say, look, I've investigated the issues. I know why I vote for who I vote for. Do you know the issues? Have you even studied your party platforms or did you just go and cast a vote? And all of a sudden, you, you, you start feeling high and lofty and self-righteous. And all of a sudden, you, you develop hostility in your heart against them because you know something. Or, or maybe sometimes the hostility that builds in your heart is, is based upon another good thing you have. Maybe it's based upon your family of origin. 
and the, the, the upbringing you had. You grew up in a healthy family system. You had privilege. You had wealth. You had money. You had education. And, and you learned a good work ethic. And you are kind of blind to all of your privileges. And yet you can use that as a, as a way of starting to look down with disdain and disgust on people who didn't have that. And you think that the playing field was equal. It was just like, look, their, their problem was they didn't have, you know, they just haven't worked hard enough. And all of a sudden you start, you start taking something good you've had that should be celebrated as a gift from God, something you thank God for, and you use it as a basis of looking down on other people. And so what the Jews are doing in our text is something we do all the time. We use good things and we turn them into self-righteous, self-justifying things, and we use them as a basis of feeling superior to others and looking down on them. And so Paul here is talking about this dividing wall of hostility that's dividing the Jews, the Gentiles, it's dividing us from our neighbors that, that, that is, is just tearing us apart. But I want you to see, he brings up this whole issue of the wall of hostility because he wants us to see that Jesus came to destroy the wall of hostility. Jesus came to destroy those walls we build in our hearts that set us against our brother and sister, that turn us against our neighbor, that cause us in self-righteousness and pride to look down on our brother or sister. Jesus came into the world to destroy the wall of hostility. And look how he puts it. He says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He says, Jesus came, Jesus came into the world, Jesus died on the cross to do a whole lot, right? Jesus came to bridge the divide between man and God. Jesus came to do battle against the powers of sin and death and darkness and hell. Jesus came to overturn all of that. But you know, one of the things, one of the chief things Jesus came to do was to destroy the wall of hostility that separates us from our brothers and sisters. And is there a, a time in American history where that message is more greatly needed than it is right now? Now, you could probably say, yeah, there have been plenty of times, actually, in American history. And you're right. We do tend to exaggerate the, the polarization, the problems in our own day. We've always been a divided people. We've always needed this message. But he says the cross came to break down the... There it is, second picture. Just come on. <laughs> Jesus came into the world to break down the wall of hostility that divides us. He came into the world to dismantle and disrupt the neat categories we put people in. Jesus came to confuse a little bit of those neat labels we give people. Jesus came to tear down those spaces in our own heart and life that we use to make us feel superior to other people. Jesus came to break down all of the stuff that tears me apart from my, my neighbor, my brother, my sister. Jesus came to take people who are at odds and bring them together. And how does he do it? Well, the text tells us he does it through the cross. 
It is through the cross that Christ has made these two one. And so we ask the question, well, how is it that the, that the wall of hostility that, that we put in our hearts that exists sometimes among us, how is it that the cross dismantles that? Well, I want to suggest that the cross does at least three things to you and me. Number one, the cross flattens us. It says, look, if God needed to incarnate and become flesh and to live the life of a humble servant and to die the cruel death of crucifixion in order to rescue and heal all of us, that means that all of us are a mess. It means that it's not just them out there who are stupid and inane and confused and got it wrong and don't get the issues well enough. All of us are in that bag. We are all sinners. We are all a mess. We are all broken before the face of God. And so the cross comes and it says, look, here is one thing that unites you to every single person in this world. You are a fallen sinner in need of the grace of God. And this solidarity and brokenness should bring us together with other people. And it means simply, look, when, when, I, when I have friction, when I start building a wall of hostility against somebody within God's family, and I'll be honest, that has happened at different stages and times in my life. It's happened in the last year and a half. It's something that I find I always need to fight against. One of the quickest ways the wall starts to come down is when I remind myself that, look, they are no different than me. <laughs> like, they've got issues and I've got issues. You know, they, they've got fears and insecurities and I have fears and insecurities. They have things they misunderstand and I have things I misunderstand. They have pockets of ignorance and I have pockets of ignorance. Like, we, we all have issues. And this unites us in solidarity and brokenness and need of God's grace. And so number one, the cross flattens us. But secondly, the cross lifts us. After it flattens you, it lifts you. Because you know what he says in this text? He says that those who are far off, as well as those who are near, those who had uh, a nice churchy religious upbringing, as well as those who they, they you know, lost themselves in sexing and drinking and drugging and addiction, and they've just made a complete train wreck. He says, those who are far off and those who are near both have the same access to God through Jesus Christ. Democrats and Republicans have the same access to God through Jesus Christ. You know, uh, progressives and conservatives have the same access to God through Jesus Christ. Maskers and non-maskers have the same access to God in Jesus Christ. White supremacists and Antifa have only one way they can get to God. It's through Jesus Christ and his grace is made available to all of them. Amen. Yeah, we, we, can, we can clap, you know? Like... And listen, you and I have one access point to God and it's through Jesus Christ. And it puts us on the same ground as everyone else. It was Billy Graham who said, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. It is flat. There is no place for intellectual, moral, political superiority. There is no place for theological superiority or family of origin superiority. Listen, because we are all sinners saved by the grace of God. 
But by God's grace, you have been lifted. Your neighbor, your brother, your sister has been lifted. Like they are loved of God. How dare we turn our back on them? You know, they have been forgiven of our God, by God. How dare we hold our grudges? The wall has been torn down that separates them from us. How dare we, re, we resurrect those old walls? It has been torn down. The, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We have equal access to God. So the cross flattens us. The cross lifts us. But finally, the cross teaches us. And what does the cross teach us? The cross teaches us that the way to reconciliation with people who we are at odds with. So just pause for a moment and call to mind somebody you are at odds with. The pathway to healing and reconciliation is the path of the cross. It is a path of humility, lowering yourself, entering into where people are at, even as God has lowered himself and entered into where we are at. It is a path of oftentimes bearing harsh, you know, criticism and complaints and pain from others that's been directed at us. It, it bears those things and it keeps walking towards others with forgiveness and love. Even as Jesus has borne in his own body, our own sin and all of the violence done to him, and yet he never retaliated. He never responded in kind. He kept moving toward us in grace and forgiveness. And it is this kind of sin-bearing, self-giving, sacrificial love that brings reconciliation and healing into the world. And there is no other way. Now, I am preaching right now, but it is way easier for me to get up here and raise my voice and to wax eloquently about this work. It is a whole different matter to get into the mess of very difficult relationships. And listen, I'm not saying we paper over wrongs that have been done. Truth must be spoken for there to be reconciliation. And, and I'm not saying that we just quickly move, well, you know, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay, let's just move forward. No, sometimes it's not okay. And it needs to be named and called out. I mean, truth is important for reconciliation. But listen, reconciliation will never come apart from a heart that has been rooted deep in the grace of God and has experienced the abundant forgiveness of God so that we can move towards each other with that same grace and mercy and humility and forgiveness. So the cross flattens us, the cross, uh, it lifts us and the cross teaches us. And so the cross of Christ brings peace among us. It dismantles, it tears down the walls. But I want you to see that our text doesn't only talk about the walls that we erect these walls of hostility or the wall that Jesus destroyed. It also talks about the new thing that Christ has made. And so let's just move over here to verse 19. It says this, and so then, so then in light of the fact that Christ in the event of his crucifixion and resurrection has already dismantled the old walls of hostility that, that mark out this old creation. And by the way, every time we resurrect an old wall, every time we keep rebuilding that wall, 
we live on the wrong side of the history that was created by the cross and resurrection of Jesus. There is a new history, a new creation, a new humanity that is broken into the world when Jesus walked out of the tomb. And every time I move toward people with grace and forgiveness and love, every time I humble myself and I reject my penchant for categorization and labeling and throwing people in that category or this one and demonizing them and attacking them and aren't they stupid and what an idiot and all that, every time I reject that, I walk in line with Jesus as he walked out of the tomb and the new creation, the new humanity, and the new family that he is forming. And he reasserts that truth to us now. He says, and so then, here's the sum total of all of the work of Jesus Christ when it comes to the church. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. He says, number one, you are part of a new kingdom. You know, our primary citizenship is not that of American. Our primary citizenship is that of the kingdom of God. I have greater solidarity with brothers and sisters who are Afghanis or Iraqis or Chinese who walk with Jesus. Who I have greater solidarity with them than I do with those who are born in this, own, this nation but who reject the lordship of Jesus. Our greatest allegiance, our greatest uh, allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Our greatest citizenship is in the kingdom of God. He says, and so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you have been brought in as citizens with all the saints. But he says, you're not just citizens in a new kingdom. You are members in a new family. He says, you are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined and knit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So he says, look, you are members of a new family. You have brothers and sisters. You know, my wife and I were reminiscing last night. We we're looking at our old wedding photos. And one of the things that just struck us is almost nobody from our wedding is around anymore except for our family. I mean, they, they, we just moved, you know? And then they moved, and they moved on from life, you know? But the people you just can't get away from, even if you try, are those who you're connected to by blood, amen? <laughs> they might bother you or irritate you or annoy you. I like that he says here that you, you haven't been brought into a community of your best friends. You know, not everybody in your church is gonna be your best friend. <laughs> Some you will just tolerate, and God will teach you long-suffering and patience in their presence. And they will be taught by God long-suffering and patience in your presence as well. But we have been brought together in an eternal family that is bound together by a blood that is stronger than even our own earthly family ties. The blood of Jesus Christ brings us together as a family. So we have been brought into a new kingdom, a new family, but finally you have been brought into a new temple. And this is the final uh, illustration. Come, come on. This was, I was like, I was building up, trying to get a little bit better with each one. But it, it's, it's interesting that the, the imagery and metaphor in this passage, because in the beginning, we, we call to mind in the temple 
this dividing wall that separated Jews from Gentiles. And of course, we could even call to mind other walls, the walls that separated the priestly class from the rest of the men, and then the walls that separated the men from the women. And in Jesus Christ, all of those walls have been broken down and we have all been brought into the temple. As, actually, no, more. We haven't just been brought into the temple. We have been made into the temple. We are like bricks being put together and being formed into a dwelling place in which God, by his spirit, will dwell. You know, next week, we're going to come back to this topic again, and we're going to talk about, well, what, what do we do with our differences, though? Our legit differences, because we have a lot of differences. And I'll just say this before I close. One thing I hope you will not do with your differences is walk away from the body of Christ because there's a group of people that are different from you politically or theologically or generationally, you know, the last thing we want is to form a church of boomers or a church of millennials or a church of one ethnicity or a church of one uh, voting block. We want to be the church of Jesus Christ, composed of every tribe and nation and tongue of people. And we actually want to know what it looks like to have to lean into the grace of God to get together with people who are not like me because I can actually learn something from people who are not like me. I can grow closer to Jesus, not in spite of the differences that we have, but because of the unique differences that we have. We can actually grow together. So may we live into this vision of being a community that lives in line consistently with the event of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The wall has been broken down. We have been brought together. Let's unite around Jesus Christ. Let's unite, let's unite around the fact that we are sinners in need of his grace. Let's unite around the fact that we have been made sons and daughters of God. And let's not let minor differences tear us apart. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we come to you now and we just ask that you might, by your grace, be at work in each one of us. Father, I confess before you now that it's easy to know this truth and to preach this truth to talk about the need for this truth. And yet it's so difficult to engage in the work of being the people of God, united together around the love of your son Jesus who has reconciled us together in a new family. So Father, we ask that it, it would be your power by your spirit at work among us, that it would be your goodness that you have poured out on our lives in Jesus, God, that would continually unite us together, that would keep us moving toward each other and having difficult conversations and, 
extending grace and patience. God, help us, we pray. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.